0: There have been a few episodes where we've talked about when nation-state actors like Russia or North Korea go up against companies or bigger targets. We've discussed what it means for Russia to have targeted the Colonial Pipeline, or for North Korea to target Sony Pictures. But what about when they go up against a cyber community at large? When there's no specific target, but the web is wide and they're hopeful that they'll catch something. What would happen if, in looking for swordfish, they maybe pulled out a shark instead? This week, we're going to talk about what happened when one man was targeted by a North Korean fishing attempt. The caveat, that man was a cybersecurity researcher and decided that he had had enough. Who is he? What did he do? Well, we'll get to that, but for now, I'm John Cordes, and I'd like to invite you this week to join me while I tell you what the shell happened to piss this guy off and how he took his revenge. Before we get into his attack, I need to contextualize a couple of things about North Korea's internet structure and some of their phishing strategies that led to this. It's going to be a little bit of a North Korean network history class for a bit, so bear with me. When you think about the internet, where does your mind go? For some of you, it might be to social media sites, news outlets, or streaming services. Maybe it's a way for you to get your app online and interact through that. Most of my listeners live in a pretty lucky time and place if you're listening to my show. The internet, while somewhat regulated, is still relatively free-range. If your activities aren't illegal, then odds are you'll have no qualms about being able to host a platform to promote what you love. At the highest level, our internet providers open the door to the internet at large, and on the other side of that door is an ever-evolving tree of branching roads to different possibilities. We have services and tools on the back end that you've likely never seen or interacted with before that allow you to navigate those roads and that host the destinations at the end of a the path. They'll route the traffic from your phone or your computer all the way to the end, where you might be trying to find a Reddit server or a YouTube page, each of which has been assigned its own public-facing IP address. There are only a finite number of those public IP addresses available because of how we structure them, and I won't go into too much of the specifics beyond that, but that's to say that with the current standard, we are allotted about 4,294,967,296 of those addresses. And those addresses are bought and allocated to avoid having issues where multiple people try to use the same ones. And each of these website providers that you use on a day-to-day basis has already bought an at least one of these addresses likely a whole block of them it's because we have all these different possibilities for hosting and the freedom to choose that we're able to have as much on the internet as we do right now but what if that was locked down and owned entirely by the government well in North Korea instead of Comcast or Warner they have Star joint Venture Co which is a joint company in part owned by the North Korean government and through that They own about 1,024 public IP addresses. It's not a lot, and by contrast, the United States has over 1.5 billion of those addresses. While it's estimated that there might be more addresses, the estimated number of actual internet users is no more than a few thousand people for North Korea. That's based on the fact that outside computers are illegal, and the morning panda company that produces north korean computers makes no more than a couple thousand per year to put it bluntly unless you're in a core privileged elite or working as a part of a government or state media it doesn't seem very likely that the internet is something you're accustomed if you're a north korean individual the whole connection for a north korean internet is based on one line that runs from pyongyang the country's capital through the mountains and into china That single-line infrastructure means that connections are likely slow, but also that since they control the gateway in, they'll be able to control what people inside and outside see of their own networks. That's in part why it was so easy for them to block Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and other sites they deemed to be capable of spreading, quote, misinformation to their citizens. And with regard to that configuration of their internet, Back in 2016, North Korea made a bit of a big mistake with some of their name servers. Name servers are essentially the maps to the roads that we were talking about earlier. A name server says, oh, you're looking for YouTube.com? Take the path to this address, and it points you on the way. Well, sometimes an attacker will attempt what's called a DNS zone transfer. It's designed to make replication of the information stored on those maps easy to copy for redundancy. But sometimes it's not configured correctly, and the public can sneak in and perform one of those actions to get a bit of a glimpse at all the possible sites and destinations that there are. From the outside, it was found that only about 30 North Korean websites were accessible to the world at large. Here are a couple of them, and I should emphasize that you can go and visit these right now if you want. There's nothing illegal or blocking you, but do it at your own risk. There's Air Corio, which is a flight ticket sales. Cooks.org.kp, which is a culinary resource site. KCNA.kp, which is a North Korean news website. KORfilm.com.kp is a website for the Pyongyang International Film Festival, interestingly enough. And the last one I'll mention is ryongnamsan.edu.kp, which is a website for Kim Il-sung University, one of their colleges. It's very likely that this is a careful presentation designed to give us a curated glimpse at a slice of life in North Korea, but it's still eerie when you think about just how few websites of theirs we can actually see. Now, there is also an internal network that we can't see on the other side of their routers that likely has a more widespread scope than what we see right now but that's only accessible if you're on the North Korean network already, so we don't have as close a glimpse into that as we do on the outside. The reason I wanted to contextualize how small the North Korean internet is for this is so that you understand exactly what I mean when I say, quote, the North Korean internet was brought offline. In my research, there are likely three instances when one might see an article titled the North Korean internet has gone offline. The first, is a manual shutdown of the routers that control the traffic in and out. Routers aren't just for your house, after all. Businesses and countries all have routers that direct and control traffic in and out. So if Kim Jong-un and the government over there ever decided that they didn't want us to see those websites, or more likely that they didn't want their elite to see the outside world, well, it would be pretty easy to give the order to sequester themselves off from the internet at large. The second is a hardware glitch. There are a great many companies that don't do business with North Korea. That includes tech companies and networking companies as well. That means that they need to rely on what might not be optimal tools to manage their equipment, and that may, in fact, be prone to failure. It's something that happens everywhere, but with limited resources, the downtime might be a bit more substantial in a case like this if something failed extensively. And the last one would be a cyber attack. It's technically possible to launch either a denial of service, infrastructure-based vulnerability, or a myriad other cyber attacks at the North Korean infrastructure and have some level of impact. Some of these outages have, after all, been relatively close in time frame to alleged hacks against U.S. companies from North Korean actors, so it's not hard to see it as a potential retaliatory slap on the wrist. But the U.S. government isn't the only one that might be doing it. After all, there are many, many hacking groups, and even individuals that might want to target them. And this is where we're gonna to wanna to keep an eye on that last sentence. Because in January of last year, North Korea went on that little fishing expedition I was talking about, up against the security industry at large. We've all seen fishing scams in the past. At least, I hope we've at least been educated on fishing scams in the past. One common way that people will try to fish is to pretend like they belong. You might get an email from someone posing as a coworker or a superior. I know in my experience, I've had emails allegedly from my C-level executive, but that came from a Gmail account instead of a work account. Those kind of things become immediate red flags, but sometimes the techniques work. Well, in 2021, North Korean hackers tried something similar. Back in January of that year, Google noticed something. Their Fred analysis group noticed that security researchers that had a history of vulnerability detection and exploit development were being targeted for information on sites like Twitter. And in doing some recon on the accounts involved, it was found that this was a front that went beyond the social network. These Twitter users were tied to not just that social network, but a blog that was created to make it look like they were full-on security researchers, and even YouTube channels that had videos detailing their alleged exploits and it was all created to lend credibility to the idea that these people were legitimate security researchers. That meant that when the time came and they reached out to you, it would seem like they were members of a community and at the very least were worth communicating with. It was truly incredible because if you went to their blog, the site had entire write-ups and even quote guest articles. The guests were fake too, but it was an added layer of deception. And with that front set up, the fakers would now reach out to legitimate researchers to follow through on the end game. I've got screenshots of some of the messages up on my website, but it went like this. If I were an exploit developer, I'd get a message just saying something like, hi or hello, and asking if I'd be able to answer some questions. Then they'd go on to ask if I'd be interested in collaborating or helping them learn about Windows and Chrome vulnerabilities. Eventually, If I agreed, they might send me their own code to compile or look at. That's where they would strike, because on the surface, it would be a package that can be opened in Visual Studio, which is a tool used for code development. However, there was also a little bit of malware hidden in the package that was meant to establish a connection back to the hacker's endpoint. That connection would have allowed North Korean actors to gain access to the system that they owned and potentially pillage any exploits or research that had already been done, which was their end goal here. It's like they're trying to steal trade secrets so they can get a one-up on the community before the disclosure goes public. It should be noted, though, that it's not just Twitter that was used here. They used LinkedIn, they used Discord, email, and more. But one thing that any good researcher coder and especially anyone in the field of exploit development knows is that you don't just run code that was given to you. You look at it closely because this kind of thing happens a lot where the code says it does one thing, but it might also have a little extra bit that could do you in. And if you do get to the point where you want to run it, even after that, you do it on a secluded system so that it doesn't come anywhere near anything of value. I've seen it time and time again in my field. Just last year, there was a major vulnerability that was disclosed and people were releasing quote, scanners for it online. You could go to websites like GitHub and find people who were claiming that, hey, you can scan using this tool I created, neat, huh? And you would download it and it might give you some kind of fake result or even a real result, but it would also do whatever they wanted on the side. If you didn't look close enough at it first, it's a pretty run of a mill scam. So it doesn't surprise me that this is a route that they took here to try to get at security researchers. Well, as these little fish attempts were happening, it turned out they targeted one guy who decided that maybe he wanted to take some action in retaliation. His online handle is P4X, but for the duration of a podcast, I'm going to refer to him as Pax. Pax was one of the people who fell victim to the January fish attacks. And while he managed to prevent any kind of swiping of his tools and work, it left a bit of a chip on his shoulder and over the course of the next year, that chip grew as his resentment toward the nation state for the exploitation of a community he loved only became larger. It would come to a boiling point earlier this year in 2022, when he decided to do something about it. So Pax decided to take some of the action that we've talked about time and time again. He started by scanning what we knew North Korea had for internet facing items. This is something that anyone can do, but if you do it incorrectly, it would be incredibly easy to get in trouble, caught, or even just have your traffic dropped. Well, he landed with a bit of a jackpot. Several of North Korea's only internet-facing routers had not been patched for a vulnerability, where he could easily perform a denial-of-service attack against them. A denial-of-service attack, again, is something that is an attack where, once you perform it, the end server or the end piece of infrastructure can no longer do its intended job that means that with a right exploit code he could knock down the routers from the external internet into the north korean internet so pax got to work automating everything he could using the vulnerabilities he had found he made it so that it would consistently take offline any of the routers he knew were vulnerable and in an interview with Wired Magazine, he shared that it was surprisingly easy from his side to do this. With his work, almost every one of the sites we talked about earlier this episode went down periodically for almost two weeks. And not just those sites though, because taking down those routers, you also take down their ability to route things like email and other traffic in and out of the country. It was a bit of a heavy blow back of the country, even if it was an easy blow to use. Now. Pax has said that he won't reveal what exploits he used, but I think that if you're North Korea, you probably just have to figure out what updates you're missing in order to patch it. In that same interview with Wired, Pax had this to say about why he did it, saying, quote, It felt like the right thing to do here. If they don't see we have teeth, it's just going to keep coming. I want them to understand that if you come at us, it means some of your infrastructure is going down for a while. And I get it, if you don't stand up to the bully, the bully keeps coming, right? Actions have consequences, and coming after the community known for securing networks and applications was sure to come with some big ones if they ever decided to bite back. I personally think what they did was pretty interesting because it kind of brings to light how much of an impact even one person can have on something that isn't given proper upkeep in the cyber domain. But let's talk about the other side of a coin here because while being a bit of a cyber vigilante might seem like it's a cool day for PAX, like real vigilantism, there are drawbacks. I want to talk a little bit about two possible impacts that could have come from something like this. The first is that it could have interfered with already underway intelligence operations. It's a bit of a trope in TV, right? The cops bust a drug ring and suddenly one of the guys reveals he's an undercover and you just ruined a two-year operation. I'll give it that's an incredibly simplistic approach here, but it's still possible that cyber vigilantism like this could do something like that. Imagine if there was data exfiltration that intelligence agencies were relying on during that time frame and now it came to a halt. Information that they were actively trying to pull out of a country for live operations could have been damaged. It could have real impact if something like that was interrupted. Moreover, what if intelligence agencies were keeping those vulnerabilities in their back pocket to use as well? A bit less likely here because these were not unknown vulnerabilities. It's not like they were zero days, but it's still something that could have tipped off North Korea into their lagging infrastructure and triggered change that would impact the big free letter agency's abilities to get in. The other major possibility is diplomatic repercussions. And this is something that I find myself thinking about a lot these days, because while PAX was not acting on the behalf of his country, that does not mean that North Korea would not hold the country accountable for its citizens. It's not like we have the most stable relationship with North Korea, as is, and giving more ammunition to destabilize it is a bit of a risky game. But when you zoom out a little bit, it's not just North Korea. In the past month and a half, I've talked pretty openly about how the cyber community is rallying around Ukraine to help it survive the war thrust upon it. Some of the reaction that we've talked about included hacker groups taking a vigilante-like approach against Russia and Vladimir Putin. The response has been amazing to see and it's incredibly interesting too, but it's also scary when you consider that if one went too far and attribution was forwarded to a country that it's very possible it could have real kinetic impacts on the war. There have already been stern warnings about Western interference with the war, and cyber interference isn't unexpected, but I imagine that the responses are very carefully laid out to keep within a scope that won't have real-world blowback to the originators. If someone else came in and launched a more destructive attack, who knows what kind of reaction would be expected. Now. I want to be clear i don't know what the right action is here i understand people wanting to help and doing it the only way they know how not everyone has a time or the money to donate and some people just want to feel like they're a little bit in control it's easy to feel powerless and by taking back that level of control and inflicting a little bit of damage it can be a way to show strength but i also know that we have an incredibly deep an intelligent suite of agencies and cyber warfare units that are almost certainly taking action as well. I don't know where people should realistically draw this line, but it's just something that I've been thinking about a lot. Because I think as time goes on, more and more people are going to get involved in these kind of things, and there are ethics to consider here. Pax admits that he had no interest in full-on destructive capabilities, When Wired asked him what he was looking to accomplish, he came back with, quote, Regime change. No, I'm just kidding. I just want to prove a point. I want the point to be very squarely proven before I stop, end quote. And I think he did prove a point. It's good that it was proven too, but I wonder if he not only stood his ground, but also might have paved the way for someone who might want to take it a step further next time. We often think about cybersecurity in the binary of safe or exploitable, but there's also a layer of ethics and laws to consider when something reaches that exploitability stage. As Jeff Goldblum once said, people can be so preoccupied with whether they could do something, they don't stop to think if they should. It's a question I encourage you to think about with relation to cybersecurity and hacking. Where do you draw the line? Where would you say enough is enough? Just think about it. I'm John Cordes, and thanks for listening to me explain a bit of cyber vigilantism. I'm back from a bit of a hiatus I took recently, and we will be releasing on a normal schedule now. I've been a bit preoccupied pursuing some certifications for work, and that took up a bit too much time for me to have the ability to do both the show and VAT. Now that I've got things sorted on that side, I'll be back in two weeks of our next episode. As always, you can check out the accessory images on the website at whattheshellpod.com or follow me at shell underscore pod on Twitter or Instagram. If you want to debate cyber ethics with me, you can even head over to our Discord. The link is on my website and I'm always around to talk about the episode and answer any questions you might have. Lastly, if you can, maybe share this podcast with a friend. I only have really a word of mouth and the little bit of time I can to push into social media interactions. so. Any recommendations you can give to your friends about the show or ratings you can give me on your podcast platform really will help. And I do appreciate it. Thank you. I'll see you all in two weeks.